Welcome to the E-Commerce Field Podcast, a show dedicated to helping seven-figure plus store owners build incredible businesses and amazing lives. I'm your host, Andrew Darian, and I've got a really good one for you today. It's a little scary, it's a like terrifying tale, but fascinating, really interesting, and hopefully helpful if you're selling selling on Amazon. And that is coming to us today from Kevin Williams, who's the owner of Brush Hero. And Kevin's a longtime community member, super active, a great guy. He had a horrific experience with people ripping off his product to the tune of more than half a million dollars of, of lost, lost sales or in a combination of, of just out-of-pocket uh, money too. And, and so with Kevin today, this is something that's been going on for him over the last year. And we really dive into a bunch of stuff. We dive into what happened, dive into how he was able to to fight some of these people who are ripping off his product on Alibaba, on Amazon, talked about what happened when the FBI got involved. We talked about if he thinks you know a patent is actually a good idea because the patent so far has wasn't effective in preventing the kind of those first rounds. So we talked about well, is it, is it effective long term to invest in getting things patented? It's he goes into a lot of depth on what happened and you know hopefully how he would try to try to prevent this in the future. So again, sobering story. It's painful to hear, especially for a guy that you really like. I uh, have to go through this, but fascinating and hopefully helpful for you. So we're going to jump into that in just a minute. But first, I want to give a big thank you to the team over at Clavio who makes the show possible. Clavio who lets you build meaningful relationships with your customers by understanding and responding to personalized cues. And how do they do that? Through email marketing, of course. Hopefully you know this by now. They've been a sponsor for a long time. And they let you build some incredibly detailed, customized email flows that draw on everything from how much your customers have purchased, when they purchased last, what they purchased, what their expected lifetime value could be. You can build some incredibly powerful, automated customer flows to help make you more money. So there's more than 10,000 merchants using it now. And if you're not one of them, you can get started and test dive them for free at ecommercefuel.com forward slash Clavio. And then secondly, a big thank you to the team at Liquid Web, who has built the best place online to host your WooCommerce store. An entire managed hosting environment that's engineered from the ground up to make your WooCommerce store just just perform incredibly well, optimize everything from the database calls to the, the server environments to automatic upgrades of WordPress and WooCommerce and your plugins. It's pretty cool. So if you're on WooCommerce, if you're thinking about going open source WooCommerce and want a rock solid place to host your store, make sure to check them out. And you can learn more about their plans and get started for as low as 39 bucks a month at ecommercefuel.com forward slash liquid web. All right, let's go ahead and jump into my discussion today with Kevin on the crazy nightmare of what happened when he had his product ripped off. So Kevin, we're going to get into kind of the what happened before you got ripped off, uh, just a, a real rough lay of the land, and then kind of go through the whole process and the whole horror story, and then your thoughts kind of at the end here. But but maybe to give people a sense of the scope of how damaging this was to you, can you give us a sense of two things? One, how much have you spent in in legal fees or, you know, or fees related to trying to combat this? And then secondly, how much revenue do you think has lost you? So I took some time and looked at this this morning. As far as direct legal fees, we ended up spending roughly $50,000 on direct representation for our IP attorneys within the U.S., working with DLA Piper in China to file for our trademarks and patents in China, plus another $20,000 in uh, what we like to call whack-a-mole services. These are the brand representation services who go out and find listings for us. 
So total somewhere around seventy to seventy-five thousand dollars in legal fees just since May, April or May of two thousand eighteen. As far as revenue, it breaks down as sort of lost opportunity. Uh, we were on a great growth trajectory, so there were some other other things that were going on, especially in Europe, as far as GDPR changes, environmental changes over there that could have impacted things as well. But when we look at what we were projecting versus where we landed, and sort of nerf that a little bit for these other environmental factors, we feel that we lost about $250,000 in Europe and about two hundred to $250,000 in the US on uh, Shopify and Amazon. Oh man, so half a mil in lost revenue, probably 75K plus in legal fees or other fees. That's brutal. So maybe you can set the stage for us before, before you, you know, before this all went down, before you saw Brush Hero pop up, and I've given given people a, a rough idea in the intro about kind of what Brush Hero is and and a little bit of your background, but if you wouldn't mind, just maybe a few details about you know before this really happened, what was going on with the business, what was the trajectory, how were things going? The business and the, this brand in particular was doing great. Before we appeared on Shark Tank, we'd received solicitations from Costco, Walmart, Canadian Tire, a number of other big retailers. And that was all in process when we, we appeared on Shark Tank in January of 2018. And then it took just a few weeks before we started to see our first counterfeits starting to pop up, actually in Europe. We didn't have the extent of brand registry protection in Europe, so we started to see the counterfeits there first. Then they started popping up in all the marketplaces. Somewhere around May, we upgraded to Amazon's brand registry 2.0, and it erased the brand gating that we had in place previously. We were one of the few brands who had been gated through some other programs in Amazon, and all of a sudden, that gating went away. And overnight, we had dozens and dozens of hijackers that were appearing on our on our listings. And then the floodgates opened. At this point, we've done over 6,000 individual intellectual property takedowns. So it, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like the publicity from the Shark Tank episode was really what, what kind of was the catalyst for a lot of this? In part, yes. Obviously, the, the, the Chinese, the counterfeiters were sitting there, they were watching the show. Perhaps they owned an injection molding facility of some kind and they thought, oh, I can make this. And there's Kevin up there on the screen, basically making the business case for them to do it. <laughs> uh, in retrospect, that maybe wasn't so bright. Uh, but as we all know, there are also these scouting tools that are out there that showed that we were doing seven figures on Amazon on just a couple of different ASINs. And they're looking at that. So although Shark Tank was definitely a kicker, I wouldn't have been a li- even a little bit surprised had we started to see counterfeits popping up from that. And maybe there's a hard question to, to answer. Maybe you can't answer it or, or aren't willing to. That's fine if not that's the case. But, but would you go back, knowing what you know now, would you go back and go on Shark Tank again? Yes. Yes, I think I would. It, it, it is funny when you look at the math that at the end of the day, that if you'd seen the show, it sort of went sideways, but there was an opportunity to walk away with a $500,000 investment. As we sketched out earlier, this has already cost me $600,000. So <laughs> it, it, it's opened a lot of doors and it's created a lot of conversations for us and added a lot of credibility for the brand that we probably wouldn't have had otherwise. And as I said just a minute ago, I think we would have gotten knocked off anyway. Uh, The numbers were absolutely there 
for the product to be knocked off by anybody who's using Jungle Scout to figure out what the volume that I was selling is, right? So I wouldn't have necessarily avoided this issue, and I wouldn't have had the opportunities that Shark Tank has provided for us. So, so did it did it start off, like we talked about kind of the timeline from things on your side, but how did people get access to all this stuff? Was it was it mostly, I'm guessing with the flood of people that came in, and you have told me that uh, are reading through that thread in, in ECF that you posted. Thank you, by the way. That was really helpful and super eye-opening for people, but I think it'll be a great guide when other people deal with this. So, so thank you for writing that up. Was the product popping up on AliExpress where things really accelerated in a negative way for you when people could get easy access to the product either through you know buying in bulk from a supplier or even drop shipping it from China? Is that what would cause a huge, you know, really accelerated the problem? Absolutely. It was the drop shippers that really, really killed us. It appeared on Taobao, on Alibaba, and several other Chinese sites. First with one supplier, then with two, and then we think that we're up to even five independent suppliers. We've actually purchased fakes so we can figure out where they're coming from. And we've identified different characteristics that suggest five different sets of molds that are floating around there. So yes, uh, somebody decided this was a great thing to produce. Then the other factories decided that might be a good thing to produce. And all of a sudden there were listings all over the place on the Chinese sites. That took just minutes for drop shippers to pick up on it and see the arbitrage opportunity. Yeah. Uh, What about, we talked about some of the financial implications and the, the costs for for you or your business for this happening. What about some of the non-financial issues you had to deal with? One thing you mentioned was, you know, a lot of calls from people about poor quality. Can you talk a little bit about that and also any other non-financial issues you had to deal with as a result of all these counterfeits floating around? You know, the the individual lost sales are a pretty big deal. That was a big number for a company that's our size, right? But it's absolutely the brand impact that we've had from this that's the gift that just keeps on giving. When the Chinese or the drop shippers really hijacked our listings on Amazon, we ended up in a brief situation where our inventory was actually commingled with the. Oh their no! Yes, yes, kids at home, don't commingle your inventory ever. Turn that off. Yeah. And so, just so people know, if you're not on Amazon, you can either choose to if you have like a brand that's. You can either have your inventory put in with all the other inventory. So really, it just becomes kind of like a like dumping water out of a water bottle into a big tank and then people pull from it so you can't track it. And if you do that, of course, you have no controller if the product came from you and is genuine or if it's getting ripped off by other people. So is that that's what you mean by commingled, right? That's what I mean by commingled. And since I controlled my brand, I controlled my distribution, it seemed like it would be okay for me, but I wasn't looking far enough ahead as far as what might happen if an inferior product got into the mix. So we ended up in this awful situation where I may sell a unit to someone, but Amazon would pick a Chinese unit out of uh, their inventory and it would show up and it would be a complete piece of junk. To be honest, I would be way better off had they spent a little bit more engineering time and a little bit more effort on the product because if it even approximated the quality that we offer, then I wouldn't have gotten so many complaints. But instead, brushes shot off, like the turbines exploded, they leaked, it was just terrible. And we ended up with over 150 one-star reviews in a row over... Uh, like a two or three month period. So this product was hovering around 4.2 out of five stars, which given the nature of the product, that was a pretty comfortable place for me to be. And it just plummeted. Um, Eventually, we had to close the main ASIN, which had made several million dollars just to get rid of those reviews. Amazon was absolutely uncooperative about uh, the whole thing because they would point to the reviews and say, well, you sold that product. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, yeah, I sold that product, but you picked the fake out of the uh, the inventory. And then you'd get hijackers. So we fixed the commingled issue. We pulled all the inventory back. We opened a new ASIN. And then within days, we had people that were drop shipping and hijacking the listing. So because it's still high- the, the, the new listing that you had Yeah, just the new up. listing. Well, it was an old one that we resurrect, resurrected that had a hundred some odd reviews we could start from. But they were drop shipping from China. And since they were listed against that SKU or that ASIN, as long as the bad quality products were flowing, the negative reviews kept flowing as well. And that just went on and on and on and on. Kevin, to interrupt, sorry to interrupt, but but with, with that, when you got the new listing up, was there, and maybe you did this and for some reason it just didn't work out, you had the brand registry 2.0, which you, you, were you able to gate, I know, I know you lost that gating for a little bit, but were you able to regate your new listing that you were hoping to resurrect without all the bad reviews so that you could be the sole owner? So once you, how were they able to do that once you recall the inventory, put it back in non-commingled, had the new brand registry 2.0, and hopefully or, or theoretically had a total lockdown on your distribution and, and non-commingled inventory? How are they able to sell on your listing stuff? Gating is still very rare. Uh, Amazon doesn't call it gating, by the way. They call it brand restriction. But brand restriction is not something that they cavalierly give. My suspicion is it usually comes as a result of some sort of litigation or arbitration behind the scenes. Despite literally hundreds and hundreds of hijackers and infringers that we've had, we've been completely unable to get even an ASIN gated or restricted. So the brand is now is fully ungated. The ASINs are ungated. Pretty much anybody can list against them. And Amazon, at one point, I had a rep tell me that it was plausible for somebody to be buying my product in bulk, shipping it to China, and then drop shipping it back to Amazon. So this is a made in the US or made in the UK product set. And Amazon had the temerity to suggest that the Chinese drop shippers were actually legitimately buying it from me, shipping it to China, and then shipping it back the other way. That sounds very cost effective. Very cost effective and selling it for a quarter of what I was selling it for. <laughs> I think they just had a bone to pick with you. They were just probably spending tens of thousands just to, you know, you probably offended somebody over there, Kevin. Possibly. Uh, you know, that's going to continue though. There's a whole PR effort that we're going through trying to get attention to this issue and uh, shed some light on it. If for nothing else, so that uh, we, we have a story that we can tell as far as the brand and the perceived quality that people are seeing, because that is really the long-term damage to us. When you think of a star ranking on Amazon, of course, we all know if you drift below four stars, you're, you're sitting at three and a half stars, you will see a decline in sales. But downstream, you see a decline of sales in other channels as well. First places we saw that were with other big retailers. So we'd go to say Napa Auto or AutoZone or somebody like that. They'd take a look at our Amazon listings and say, well, you guys have terrible reviews. <laughs> Why would we want to work with you? We see it in possible investors, same sort of deal. We see it with PR and influencers. And I think there's a, there's a human tendency to sort of pile on when there's a negative uh, vibe about a brand. It's very easy for people to pile on. When everybody's feeling great about a brand and there's all this positive commentary out there, people tend to hold off a little bit. But once the brand is impaired, it's super easy for them to pile on and just be like, ah, this thing's junk, you know, and the, the velocity of negative reviews actually increased, which was a bit of a surprise for me. What did you do for those people who called you and said, hey, we ordered this from Amazon? They had 
you know, issues that you could very clearly uh, see were, were due to them having received a counterfeit product. What did you do? Because technically, you know, they bought off your listing. How did you, did you just, just kind of suck it up and, and either refund them the money or, or send them a new product that you knew was legitimate? We'd do anything for them, basically. <laughs> for people who bought a fake version of the product not on our listing, we would generally offer them a very deep discount on the real product. Once people realized that they'd bought a fake, frankly, most were pretty offended. A lot of consumers uh, became defensive of us because they realized that they'd sort of participated in this whole mess. So along with the negative environment that was created by the negative stars were actual demonstrable impacts that we had on our direct response advertising. We do a lot of spend on Facebook, high six figures of spend. And what started to happen on Facebook is because of the number of fakes and negative vibes that were out there, every time we'd run a new campaign, whatever clever idea it was, whatever content it was, folks would start chiming in with, oh, it's a Chinese piece of junk. Oh, it's a POS, you know, whatever it may be. And that started to poison our well as far as direct response. It really hurt us because we can't run an ad where the first comments say things like that. But yet we'd spend a day of budget and then we'd have to close it and we'd have to start over. Worse, as Facebook has evolved over the summer, well, towards the end of the year, Facebook really started to get a little bit smarter about how they were presenting relevancy of ads. And they started looking at natural language in ads. So even worse, you'd see Facebook actually punishing the ad campaigns because they were sensing negative sentiment within the ads. And that caused our cost per acquisition to rise. It caused our CPMs to rise, caused our relevance scores to drop. And it just created this horrible, horrible cycle that uh, we spent a good chunk of the rest of the year getting out of. Thankfully, by about quarter four, uh, we tamped down uh, most of the issues that we had, and it was a much more positive environment. But even now, we see those, uh, those comments pop up. And there are rumors, or more than rumors, there's some substantiation to the idea that Facebook is starting to punish brands for hiding or deleting comments from users, or punishing brands for things like frowny faces or angry faces like that, that customers or that consumers actually click on. So we suspect that on top of five dollars $600,000 of direct impact, we also had much less efficiency in our advertising because of all of this. And if you had to guess, this wasn't people who had received a knockoff and just happened to see your your ad. This was people who maybe saw your ad, went to Amazon, checked out the reviews, saw the poor reviews that were generated from people getting a knockoff, and then came back to Facebook to post. Oh, also also people who had received knockoffs. People received them as gifts for birthday gifts or whatnot. It has my brand on it. So how are they going to know that they didn't receive a, a real brush hero? So they were legitimate comments from angry people who had received bad versions of my product. How do you how do you defend against that sort of thing? So how did you how did you fight back on this? I mean, you, you you've alluded to a couple of the things, but what were it seemed like you had two big bats that you could swing on this. One was the takedown requests, and the second was the cease and desist letters. Can you talk about you know how can you talk about both of those in terms of which one was most effect, which ones were most effective and and uh, what you guys how you use them to try to fight back. So cease and desist have never proven to be ter terribly effective for us. The very first time that we we encountered a Shopify store that was selling fakes, we went to town on it. We we 
paid our IP attorney $6,000 to draw up cease and desist letters. We ended up with the corporate counsel of Shopify on the phone. I remember wandering around in a like an ice castle thing in Utah with my family, like plugged into my phone, yelling at the Shopify counsel to make this stop, make it stop. And it's almost cute in retrospect, because now we've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of takedowns of sites. But that first one, you could only have one first one, I guess. They're not impressed. The, a lot of these dropshipper sites that are out there aren't US-based anyway. They don't really believe that they're subject to US jurisdiction. You can go after their ISP. You can get them taken down on Shopify in the back end. But they're not particularly interested in your in your cease and desist. Not that you shouldn't do it, but it's it's sort of second tier. The most effective tool in our arsenal by leagues and leagues and leagues is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA takedown process that platforms are obligated to facilitate. And through DMCA, that's where we've had over 6,000 individual takedowns. Via Some of those are trademark. The vast majority are copyright infringers. And that's a tool that we've been able to systematize um, both with our own staff and by using the third-party brand monitoring firms that are out there as well. So this would be something, for example, where someone, they use your name brush here, they use photography that you have used, or something that you've created that's very obviously uh, covered by your IP, either a trademark, a name, or or, or the patent uh, patented product. And, and is that what the ground is for being able to issue these requests, these takedown requests? I, I kind of an important clarification there. DMCA covers copyrights. There actually isn't an identical platform yet for trademarks. So trademarks are generally enforced through the DMC pro- DMCA process. But sort of a little known fact is that the DMCA indemnifies big platforms as long as they follow through with takedowns. But there's not a similar protocol in place for trademarks yet. Now, the big platforms are lobbying for this because they realize that they have a ton of risk. And technically, you know, somebody like me, I'm way too small, but a bigger version of me could go after the platforms for allowing the trademark uh, violations to persist. Could you give a clarification between, uh, so you're talking about a difference between copyright and trademark. Could you give us an example of, let's say, an instance where someone was ripping you off and they were violating your copy copyright that you could use one of these DMCA takedown requests uh, effectively versus when they were using, they were in violation of your trademark and it would be more difficult to. So it's, it's trademark is pretty easy to enforce as well. Trademark would be Brush Hero. It's my registered trademark. They're using the term Brush Hero. They're using, they were just copying my whole logo. Heck, they were copying my customer service number and my total packaging. So yeah, there's a, there's a picture of me on the on the Chinese boxes. It's pretty oh, man. funny. It's got a, it's got a punch to the gut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. The photos, so the photos of me are copyrighted images or a copyrighted copy, whatever it may be. But the brand, the trademarked brand, is Brush Hero. Sort of an, an interesting tool that we have at our disposal now that we didn't previously is a formal registration of copyright, which is taking you can you can apply a general copyright to your the the creative works that you create on your website you put copyright at the bottom of the page yada 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 but you can actually file with the USPTO for a registered copyright on a work so what we've done is we've gone forward and we filed versions of our website that have all of our images and copyrights with uh, the USPTO and once those are granted they'll come along with a registration number and once it's a registered copyright it has a heck of a lot more teeth because violations of registered copyrights come along with statutory damages that are relatively easy to enforce if you choose to. 
How, how was Shopify, when you would call them up and say, hey, here's someone who's violating our copyright, issuing that DMCA takedown request, were they pretty accommodating in terms of, of getting those offending sites taken offline? Sadly, no. I'm a plus merchant, uh, which I thought was going to give me uh, a little bit of an added heft in the conversation. But Shopify has actually been a little bit slower than others to respond. And they tend to counter it and they make arguments that somebody is just reselling the product and they push back. It's it's become a little bit better because we have now have over 100 Shopify sites that have been taken down. But it wasn't the cleanest process. Believe it or not, the cleanest and fastest process tends to be Alibaba itself, which has recognized the sort of risk that that this behavior presents to them. It can take just a matter of hours to get things down on Alibaba. Really interesting. So you just reach out to them and, and if the product is listed and you've got some pretty good proof that you are the original IP owner, they'll take that that listing of that uh, knockoff Brush Hero site completely off the site? If they choose to. <laughs> their overall compliance rate, rate is low. Um, their, their speed to decision is relatively fast. They, of course, won't wade into the waters of patents, but they can respect the fact that it's being marketed under a trademark. So we've been most effective with trademark takedowns on Alibaba. Okay, interesting. You actually had one product that, well, you had a lot, it sounded like, that ripped off your, your, you were just talking about how they had your name, your your picture of you on it, you know, your customer service number and everything. And you you mentioned in, in the post that you actually had uh, called the FBI. You tried to get the FBI involved at one point. Did that did, did that have any, was that effective at all? Talk, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that was that same one uh, that, that was the Shopify site that appeared out of nowhere. They, uh, the, the, the overburdened agent basically referred me to something called Stop Fakes, the FBI Stop Fakes program. And I made a report. I filed all of the images, all the corroborating information, and then sent it down a black hole. So the answer is no. That went absolutely nowhere. <laughs> And I didn't bother again. It didn't. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but there were a lot of other things that that we found that that have helped a little bit. Registering with Department of Homeland Security, as far as uh, you can register your trademarks with the Department of Homeland Security and uh, CBP, Customs and Border Protection, in particular, and they'll flag incoming shipments of uh, your products and. If they catch, say, a Chinese import of uh, the Brush Hero name, they'll flag it for investigation. If you ask me how many times this has actually happened, I'll say zero. (laughs) (laughs) But I like the idea. I like on ones and twos with drop shippers, the odds were always against anything getting caught. And even if it did, what's the difference to my world for them to seize one $12 fake from China? What I want to catch are pallets or containers of fakes that are coming in. So it's worth my it's worth my while from a mitigation perspective. Uh, what about yeah, you? Include some of the details in your your post in the forum, which again I'll link up to on on how to issue a DMCA takedown request uh, for various platforms. But can you give people a sense of what's that process look like? Maybe you Shopify as an example, or even maybe Shopify. Uh, but but let's say you let's say they're, they're they're hosting their own cart. You know, maybe it's a WooCommerce store, and I, and I don't know who you go after then. Maybe you go after the, the server that they're hosting with. But how does that process look if someone wants to try to do this on their own? Uh, they're all just, a, they're a little bit different, but they, they pretty much have the same approach, which is uh, identify the listing. Okay, this is the listing. This is the infringing material. Corroborate that it is the infringing material by showing us your copyrighted information, and then sign a document attesting that you're 
not lying about the whole thing. Then it often goes into some sort of a process that can take hours, it can take days, it can take weeks for them to turn it around. Sometimes they ask for additional information, sometimes they decide in your favor, sometimes they don't. At this point, most of our filings are held are, are handled by uh, Pointer Brands, which is well, it's an IP whack-a-mole firm based in the um, the Netherlands, and they they use image scanning and language scanning to identify fakes all over the world and file on our behalf. And, and if you're filing on your own, do you file directly with whoever's hosting the content, i.e., Shopify, i.e., let's say, you know, Rackspace if they're hosting a WooCommerce store, or do you is there a kind of a centralized DMCA website that you go to file and they take it from there? They're all different. So you need to file with the individual platform. Um, I think the hardest to go after would probably be a Magento store that's self-hosted. You can go after their ISP, possibly. You can go after their Google advertising. They're using your trademark or if they're using copyrighted images. And in those cases, that's when cease and desist get get deployed. But we haven't had that many of those. By density, by far the highest number of infringers are on eBay followed by Amazon US, followed by Amazon EU, and then sort of down the map. Yeah. What what can people do to defend against this? I mean, we've talked about some of the, you know, after the fact actions where where people are obviously ripping you off and how you try to get them down and shut them down. Talking to Alibaba, doing the DMCAs, et cetera, et cetera. If if you knew this was going to happen and you could go in a time machine back to, you know, pre-Shark Tank, what kind of preemptive steps would you take to defend your brand and business? I had to think about this for some time because uh, it's hard stuff to do. The right answer is once this business or this brand became significant, we should have gone ahead and filed for Chinese intellectual property. A lot of people will scoff at that, but it at least gives you some semblance of teeth over there if someone starts knocking you off. The Chinese tend not to care too much about US or international laws, but sometimes they care a little bit more about their own. And a lot of the platforms definitely care about Chinese laws. So if I had, say, Brush Hero filed as a trademark in several relevant categories in China before all of this happened, I would have had the ability to go after Alibaba and Taobao very quickly and hopefully cut off the flow before it became a torrent. But that would still co- that costs a lot of money. As I said, it probably fifty, forty to fifty thousand dollars is what it'll cost us all told to get our patents and trademarks filed in China. And that's all still in process. It's taken over a year now since we uh, initiated those. What else? There are basic things that you can do, everybody should do, to be honest, anybody who has a differentiated product that don't cost a whole lot, making sure that you're properly enrolled in Brand Registry 2.0 in Amazon, in Vero, which is the eBay enforcement mechanism, make sure your brand is properly listed there. It stakes a claim to your intellectual property. Doing things like filing a pro se filing, on your own filing of copyrighted material on your website. You, you can extract your entire store via various PDF tools that are out there. And for about $150 filing fee, you can file your entire website with the USPTO. That process has taken a year, but eventually you're going to end up with that registered copyright at the end of the day. And then when somebody rips off your images or your copy, you can send them a cease and desist that isn't just mean, it's gnarly. Like these are statutory damages. You could be in for $150,000 of damages if you don't take this down. We're really looking forward to that day. We do other little things like we have hidden watermarks in almost all of our images. So little teeny, teeny, tiny, like pixel level things that we can point to. 
so if they if they manipulate the image a little bit by like skewing it in uh, Photoshop or rotating it or whatever, sometimes DMCA claims will be denied because the image isn't exact. But we can point to that element to show that that watermark is there. And that's helped us out on a number of occasions. Transparency. I haven't talked about transparency. So I'm a believer in Amazon transparency, an individual unit labeling program. So your units end up with basically a born on date that looks like a little QR code type thing. And the way it's supposed to work is anyone that's shipping inbound inventory to an ASIN on Amazon that has that's enrolled in transparency, it needs to have that transparency code on it. And if it doesn't, then it's supposed to get held for investigation and the person needs to provide proof of purchase. We have hopes that that's going to really slow things down. I have my doubts that it's going to apply so much to FBM, uh, fulfilled by merchant shipments from China. It's supposed to, but I have yet to see that actually happen. And we have plenty of hijackers that are still popping up. Also doing sweeps between before uh, key dates are really, really important. We had a terrible thing happen to us over Black Friday and Cyber Monday, where I was at a Thanksgiving dinner and right around 4 p.m., we had seven hijackers pop up on Amazon because they knew full well that with the holiday and the next day being Black Friday and then a weekend and then Cyber Monday, even if we jumped on it right away, there was no way that the Amazon machine was going to respond to their the DMCA claims with so that alone probably cost us thirty dollars or $40,000 over those prime shopping days. But beforehand, we had done sweeps of all the marketplaces and tried to clean everybody out as much as we could. But the whack-a-mole continues. With the Amazon transparency, so it's something where it sounds like it's a, almost a unique identifier or a, an additional level of security via that code or that sticker that, that's inbound. Is that a sticker that you print like from your seller central account when you're creating inbound shipments? Or how do you get access to that sticker, that born on date that kind of almost serves as a, you know, a certificate or a little sticker of authenticity? How do you get access to that when you're enrolled in the program, whereas the other sellers can't? So once you're enrolled in the program, you request a certain number of codes. They have a fee per code of five cents. And then you have two different mechanisms of producing those codes. One, you work with a serialized label company who prints sheets and sheets and sheets of the little codes, or you work with a serialized uh, lithographic printer who can do it directly on your packaging, that became too expensive for us. So we do the sticker route. We have a solid chain of custody within our uh, warehouse in Utah where those are locked away and uh, they get applied to unit by unit. It's almost like two-factor authentication for, for physical products. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much the way it works. And it, technically, a user could scan it. Why I say born on date is within the Amazon Shopper app, the consumer app, they have, if they use the scanning portion of that, it'll pop up and it'll say, in my case, built in Salt Lake City, Utah, November 2018, because that's when we issued all the codes. So I mean, even those we're building right now, we'll say November, but that's just because we bulked up on the codes when we started. Interesting. Kevin, when I've talked to people about patents in the past, I have zero experience with patents. When chatting with people over, you know, kind of being a fly on the wall in other conversations, it seems like there's a couple different rules of thought for patents. If you're, you know, a huge, you know, multinational patents obviously make a lot of sense, especially when you have a huge legal team that you can go after stuff. But a lot of people I've talked to said, you know, like patents are nice, but if you're, if you're small to medium sized, Sometimes they can just cost a lot of money and really a patent is just a right to sue people, right? Like as we've just talked about, the brush here was patented and it 
you still had to put so much time and energy and still continue to to try to enforce that patent. So, you know, does it going forward, what do you think about spending the time and energy to get a patent like this? Like would you would you would you do it? Like would you going through this again, would you go through and spend a lot of time upfront in getting a patent for a product or having seen what can happen even with a patented product, would you say, you know what, I don't even know if it's worth the hassle or effort. Obviously, I want to protect my brand. I want to protect, uh, you know, do some of these other things that, that, that we've talked about to, to keep your supply chain, keep counterfeits out of that. But would you patent a product again after all of this? I, I, I am a little torn about it because from an enforcement perspective, trademarks and copyrights have been far more valuable. But if you really have a novel idea and, and, by that, I mean a utility patent of some kind. I, I don't feel as strongly about design patents, but if you have a utility patent that can still offer broad-based protection from big guys who might come in and 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 steal your lunch, basically. It's, it's one thing to have kind of hustlers going after you, which is what I have. It's quite another to have somebody like AutoZone decide that, oh, wow, this is a great segment. Oh, look, there's no patent. Next thing you know, they own the segment and I'm done. Right. So I still think it's worth it. And I think it's worth it from an enterprise value perspective as well. It's an asset that you hold. It's an asset that could be transferred with the the enterprise as well. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time going after individual patent enforce, uh, infringers in court. The way that works on Amazon is Amazon stays out of that business. And you need to produce some sort of a court order saying that XYZ seller has been infringing. And you probably spent fifty dollars to $100,000 getting that court order. And then the next week, XYZ seller becomes a ABC seller because Amazon's let them in under another form. And now where are you? You're going to file another fifty dollars to $70,000 uh, infringement claim? I don't think so. So really, the patent is, is long-term value and asset for the business plus defense against you know big legitimate people going after after your product line not but it's not going to help so much in some of the onesie twosie small guys that are that are killing you by a thousand pin bricks any any final thoughts on on ip maybe especially too you know you you hear about we hear a lot in the news about theft of intellectual property and how it's something that is meaningfully hurting you know kind of a for us, you know, we're Americans, the U.S. economy. Any final thoughts on how this has shaped your view of the world, of commerce, of politics, going through this whole process? So I've always been an optimist. I think you have to be an optimist to be an entrepreneur. I'm always, I've always been a believer in humanity, but this whole experience has left me pretty It feels like 2018 was the the year of waking up and getting kicked in the shins repeatedly, every day, day in day out. You know, six seven hundred thousand dollars that we were down. That was six or seven hundred thousand dollars that we didn't have in 2018 to buy another brand, to invest in another product line, to invest in people, to expand more. Instead, all we did in 2018 was survive. We still grew a ton. Thankfully, we had the the big retailers, uh, Costco and Walmart in particular, who probably saved my bacon as far as having stable revenues through all this mess as our direct-to-consumer channels were declining. But think about that on a, on a minor scale. I have you know, six employees. They're spread all over the place. I didn't add another employee. I didn't add another brand. I didn't create more revenue. That's going to linger. So now I'm, I lost a whole year of organizational development over this. And that's being replicated in hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of other little brands that are out there. And it's an absolutely huge deal that has to be solved. 
Kevin, so uh, we got to start wrapping stuff up here. But one thing I'd love to do before we close this out is do a, a quick lightning round if, uh, if you're open to that. Sure, of course. All right. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? Uh, this actually happened at uh, EFC Live. Uh, I changed my mind about SEO and need to have a, 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 re, a revisitation to SEO in our business. Okay. Was that going to uh, Jeff's session on SEO or something else that caused that? Yeah, it was actually a conversation I had with Jeff and it, it keyed up as well with Josh Carey's uh, presentation on content, content development and those long tails. Um, I've been too much of a direct response marketer and I need to refocus on content marketing. Oh, what is your dream mountain bike? If you could just, you know, cost was no object. What bike would you be, be cruising around on those, those amazing Park City trails you're so close to? You know that this is a foolish question because there is no one mountain bike. It's always in plus one. I, yeah, I, I definitely need another bike and need with big quotes around it. My wife's not around, but yes, honey, I need another bike. N plus one. N plus one. What are you currently spending too much money on? Apart from fighting counterfeiters. <laughs> That's where I'm spending too much money for sure. Now, uh, Facebook, uh, some of those negative impacts that uh, we had from this means that we're overspending on uh, DR advertising on Facebook. And I think that's very common amongst other brands too. Apart from buying more mountain bikes uh, and bikes in general, what's something you're not spending enough money on? Uh, content, content generation. Uh, I have a ton of ideas of things I can do. Uh, they're going to cost real money and take real time. And we've got to figure out a way to find both the time and the money to do them. In your opinion, what's the maximum number of days you can wear a pair of jeans without washing them? See, I think this is a trick question. Am I riding a horse or not? Uh, <laughs> let's assume, I know you ride, I know you commute by horse almost exclusively, but for the sake of, sake of argument, let's say you are not riding a horse. Uh, I'm going to say two. I'm pretty fastidious about that. two. Wow. That's, that's uh, a pretty hygienic man here. <laughs> um, what's one of the top three items on your bucket list? Something you absolutely want to do before you die? Oh, I want to do a full trek to uh, Everest Base Camp. And then finally, what non-business or non-family thing are you most proud of in your life? I think uh, I had to ponder this a little bit, but if you'd asked me a few years ago, if I thought that I was going to end up a crusader for the rights of disabled people, I'd be really surprised. Uh, but that's become a really big part of my life. And I'm really proud of what we've done with Columbus Foundation and uh, what we've done with our business as far as integrating with them. That's really cool. Well, Kevin, I know this, uh, I don't know if, if fun is the right word to summarize what we just talked about, but absolutely fascinating, absolutely incredibly helpful. And, you know, if there is a silver lining in this whole thing, hopefully it's that someone listening can can either combat this more effectively or set their business up to be more defensible against this in the future. And any last thoughts or words before we we kind of sign off here? Yeah, in just a couple of weeks, Inc. Magazine is going to come out with a multi-page spread, or at least I think it's a multi-page page spread about all of my adventures, particularly with Amazon. And my fondest hope is that some senior executive Amazon will have his morning constitutional interrupted <laughs> by a picture of me, my brush, and some of my disabled workers. <sighs> Oh, man, Jeff. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, it's Jeff. We'll go for, for the highest levels uh, over there. And if we air this after that goes live, we'll, we'll do our best to put a link up to that story in the show notes. You said there was a bunch of pictures of you looking very serious, kind of like gazing off along the horizon. Is that true? Oh, yes. A lot of pensive Kevin looking into the distance. <laughs> I, may, I may abuse my, uh, my moderating privileges in the forum and update your, your headshot to include one of those. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for being willing to share this, for talking about it so candidly. Really appreciate, uh, really appreciate your time.
If you're listening to this and you own your own e-commerce business, and chances are probably pretty good that you do if you've gotten this far through the episode, you need to check out our private community for store owners. It's a, a vetted group of over a thousand store owners and experienced professionals. And the reason it's different is, is just like I mentioned, it's vetted. We go through and we require all new members have a seven-figure business. They actually have experience in the space. And we go through and we review all applications to make sure everyone's legit when they come in. And then once everyone gets inside, it's not a free-for-all. We, we moderate in ways where if people are being jerks or you know behaving inappropriately, we toss them out. If people come in and do nothing but ask questions, we toss them out. We really value experience. We value reciprocity. And it's a place where you're going to be able to connect with other store owners to learn what's working, but also make good friends. Like some of my best friends I have met through this community. And I know that others can say that as well. So if you're interested in learning more and applying for membership, you can do that at ecommercefuel.com forward slash form. That's F-O-R-U-M. And also, again, want to just say a big thank you to the two sponsors that make this show possible. First, to Clavio, who makes email marketing automation incredibly easy and powerful. You can learn more about them and get started for free at ecommercefuel.com forward slash Clavio. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O. And also to Liquid Web, who offers hands down the absolute best place to host your WooCommerce store online with plans starting at just 39 bucks. So if you want to learn more about them and how they can supercharge your WooCommerce site, you can learn more at ecommercefuel.com forward slash liquid web. Thanks so much for tuning into the show, listening, really appreciate you and looking forward to catching you again next Friday. Want to connect with and learn from other proven e-commerce entrepreneurs? Join us in the e-commerce fuel private community. It's our tight knit vetted group for store owners with at least a quarter million dollars in annual sales. You can learn more and apply for membership at ecommercefuel.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again next time.